Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Billy Joel's second album included his most iconic song, and the one that provided his breakthrough success and pointed the way for his post-West Coast work. But surrounding the title track and Captain Jack are the sounds of a songwriter still finding his way. Fortunately for us, that path is still pretty exciting. Released in 1973, Piano Man lays much of the blueprint for the hits to come. We hear great melodies, virtuistic piano playing, and a variety of styles. There's also that flair for theatrical drama that earned him just as many comparisons to great American songbook-style writing as it did to rock and roll. But there are also country and gospel elements that Joel would soon abandon, and the lyrical and songwriting skills that would provide him with dozens of hit records later were still developing here. In fact, as we'll learn, it was once slated to be his last album for a major label instead of the start of his ascent into global superstardom. Despite all this, Piano Man is a record filled with big hits, classic songs, and fan favorites. And it was an important step toward the turns Billy's career would take in just a few short years. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's major label solo debut, Piano Man. Michael, I have to say, I am super excited to do this album. When we started the podcast, we thought very carefully about how often we would do the albums, and so we only do two a year. And uh, we sort of started with with the the lesser albums. You know, we did Cold Spring Harbor, The Bridge, we did Street Life Serenade, and we did River of Dreams. None of those are his, you know, biggest or most popular albums. And although we had a lot of fun revisiting them, this is the first time we're hitting on one that's a little well, more well regarded. It's a different album. There's some interesting lore behind it, and there's a lot to dig into here. I'm excited about this one as well. When we did start in February 2020, we had also talked about if we wanted to do this in sequence, if we wanted to go Cold Spring Harbor, Piano Man, Street Life, and on down the line. But we thought it would be a little more surprising and give us a little more flexibility if we scrambled it up and didn't necessarily go in order So here we are about two years down the line and we're finally digging into album two here. So this is this is really exciting for me. I love doing these album episodes. I think so far this is the album that sounded the most different to me on a close listen for both better and worse. I really thought a lot about these performances and the performances on songs in the attic of the same tracks, you know, the ones that overlap. I always knew and sort of took it off faith that they were different. The close listen revealed the real how and the why of that. And I also find that this was still an album of Billy Joel trying to find who Billy Joel was. This is a fascinating listen. Elements of that, but also elements of still Billy in the back of his head wanting to just be a songwriter and write for other artists because this album is a little more scattered when it comes to uh, stylistically what's going on than some of the albums that would follow. Uh, you know, when we talked about Cold Spring Harbor those two years ago, uh, we we talked about how for an album that was supposed to be uh, a, a platform or a springboard for other artists to hear these songs and perform them themselves, many of them seemed very idiosyncratic and a little personal. You know, we sort of challenged that narrative a little. And so it's funny that when we listen to Piano Man, which should have been more of his own artistic statement, we find songs that we could imagine him having written for others. I'm very curious as to what his headspace was really like then. He, you know, by this point had signed the deal with Columbia Records. This was the first release under Columbia Records after Cold Spring Harbor coming out two years prior, which was Family Productions. You know, so the story goes, you know, they, you know, it was several years trying to uh, work out a deal with Columbia 
We're learning now that Artie Rip was a part of those negotiations, but also there was the famed concert, uh, Sigma Sound, which was included on the Legacy Edition of Piano Man, which spawned the live recording of Captain Jack, which became a big hit at WMMR, which also caught the ear of Columbia. So there's a few things going on during this era that would ultimately lead to the uh, signing to Columbia. But uh, this album nearly died shortly after it came out. There's a a few uh, fortunate turns that sustained it enough to get another album, but we'll dig into that as well. I guess I bring up a couple points that Billy brings up in the uh, in the new box set, the vinyl set. You know, he he mentions in particular the country western influence here, obvi- very apparent. But he makes mention that specifically the Roy Rogers band is playing on the album, so that certainly explains a lot. He makes a point of saying I was happy to be signed with a major label. I had been on a Rinky Dig label before that. Actually, been on a couple of Rinky Dig labels. He says first band was on Mercury. Then he admits that the hassles were on United Artists, which was fairly big, but we put out two horrendous albums. And then he was on Epic, which was a subsidiary of Columbia for Attila. You know, it's funny that this is actually his third time on a halfway decent label. In just four or five years time. That puts this into a, a weird perspective. You know, what a whirlwind of changes his career and style had taken in just that short amount of time. From Blue-Eyed Soul to some psychedelic, to psychedelic later rascals kind of stuff to uh, the full-on head stuff of uh, Attila and then the singer-songwriter there of Cold Spring Harbor. And that brings us to the Western album. Yeah, so it's a bit of an identity crisis. I think Billy, you know, like we said, still trying to figure out who he is. I mean, he's tried so many things. Billy always likes singing in characters, too. So he he's almost always afraid to really let himself out there. So let's start with the personnel. Who's on this record? Who's producing? Things like that. The album was produced by Michael Stewart, who did both this and the Street Life Serenade album. Michael actually passed away back in 2002. Michael Stewart produced a, a handful of albums, but wasn't very well known as a producer. Piano Man and Street Life are probably the two most well-known albums that he produced. And interestingly enough, Michael Stewart left the music business altogether by the 90s went on to become a computer programmer. The album was engineered by Ron Malo. And then you had Ted Jensen at Sterling Sound doing the remastering. Beverly Parker did the design. Bill Imhoff did the illustration. Famed album cover that we discussed in the uh, album covers episode. Obviously, we have Billy Joel, acoustic piano, organ, electric piano, harmonica, and vocal. Michael O'Martian on accordion and arrangements, tracks one through four and six through ten. That's everything but Billy the Kid. Jimmy Haskell, who did arrangements on Billy the Kid. Three guitar players, Richard Bennett, Larry Carlton, and Dean Parks. Eric Weisberg playing banjo and pedal steel guitar. Fred Heilbrunn on banjo. Wilton Felder on bass guitar. Emery Gordy Jr. on bass guitar. And then on drums, you had Ron Tutt, who played on the first nine songs. And you had Reese Clark, who played drums on Captain Jack. Bill Armstrong on violin. And backing vocals were Laura Creamer. Mark Kramer, and Susan Stewart. You hear a lot of those gospel and group harmonies on several songs throughout. Some of the history of the album, in terms of at least after it came out, there's a great essay called How a Stiff Caught Fire. This is by Keith Yates. At the time, Keith Yates was a rock critic for a college paper, got a hold of Piano Man and loved it, was very disappointed to hear that it had flopped, and sort of conspired from there to use the contacts he had already made in the record industry in the music industry to actually get this record moving again. So we're going to hear a little from Keith Yates. I was able to catch up with him and we're going to let him tell most of that story here. In his article, The Time a Stiff Caught Fire, Keith Yates talks about a footnote in Billy Joel history that changed the course of Billy's career. But it's a story so obscure that not even Billy knew about it for decades. Keith was reviewing albums for his college newspaper in Southern California in 1973, 
the year Piano Man came out. Keith received a promo copy among the 20 to 30 other records he got every week, but never listened to it. Months later, he found it at the bottom of a four-foot pile of records and gave it a spin. He thought the album, which he'd never heard of, by an artist whose name he didn't even know how to pronounce, was the work of an amazing talent. But when he reached out to Columbia Records, he received shocking news. The album had stiffed, meaning it didn't generate a lot of sales or airplay within a few weeks of its release. The record company was no longer interested in it and had told the young singer-songwriter and his producer, Michael Stewart, that, quote, it's time to go back to your day jobs. The news sent Keith on a months-long crusade to revive the record. In the article, he talks about making customers at the record store where he worked sign a petition for Columbia to reconsider and trying to get more copies of the album for radio stations. Finally, he struck a deal with a DJ at KYNO, a taste-making radio station in the area. Thanks to that chance meeting, the station played the Piano Man album in its entirety, and Yates and his friends coordinated for dozens of people to call the station in support of the record. The album took off from there, and the rest is history. But the story of his work was largely unknown. Billy and Michael Stewart were only told at the time that some kids in California rallied to get the album on the radio. Billy would get the full story in 2018, when he and Keith finally met. You can read the full story at keithyates.com, and there's a direct link to it in our show notes. For our Piano Man episode, we're speaking with Yates about how that experience impacted his life, and also to get a glimpse at how the record industry was changing back in 1973. Keith, in your story, you talk about rediscovering Piano Man in a pile of albums in your apartment. What was it about the album that evoked such a strong reaction uh, for you to take up this cause? It sounded so fresh. And the artist, whom I called Billy Joel, because nobody had ever heard of him that time, and I thought that was how he pronounced his name. The thing about him was he sounded young and innocent, which I identified with. I was kind of a naive young kid trying to fit in as a the rock music critic for the college paper, try to pull it off, you know. And Billy had, I mean, every song on that album was in a different genre. It's like one of them sounded like it came off uh, some chiming um, Gordon Lightfoot kind of album. Other songs sounded kind of confessional and this sort of slice of life like Tom Waits, who just come out with his first album, Closing Time, uh, this kind of gruff voice in these kind of unvarnished stories. So Billy sounded, he hadn't been corralled by A&R artists and repertoire guys in the record business into having a defined thing. Like, well, you're going to sound like this. He was like a Bob Dylan or a Miles Davis. He's in all kinds of genres. You can't contain him. He didn't really have a trademark sound yet. And I just loved the freshness and how wide ranging, how deep his talent was. Probably none of those songs other than Captain Jack and Piano Man really hit me as being radio worthy. And I thought I'm just discovering it. I'm thinking, but how come it's at the bottom of my pile? It's a four foot high pile of rejects. It's the ones I'm not going to sell or trade. Okay. I'm just tossing them. It had been many months since that album had come in for me to, and I'd never listened to it. I thought with a cover photo like this kind of bulgy eyed guy, I'm not even interested in listening to this. It's just I don't have time for it. So I rediscover it, as you mentioned. At the time, you were reviewing pretty much anything you came across. Uh, personally, what music were you listening to? Prog rock, uh, for sure. King Crimson, yes. Early Genesis albums, Foxtrot and Nurse, Nursery Crime and Trespass, their first album. An Italian band, PFM, Premiata, Fornaria, Marconi. The Moody Blues, to some extent, Pink Floyd. Led Zeppelin, a couple German art rock groups, Amandul and Can and Kraftwerk and Neu and Achim Reichel. I was pretty far away from singer-songwriter, you know, Billy Joel's things. I listened to a lot of psychedelic uh, stuff, especially Jefferson Airplane, you know, some Grateful Dead. Was it especially surprising to you then uh, that a singer-songwriter album really resonated with you? It wasn't that I loved all of the songs. I really liked Captain Jack and Piano Man. It was that I thought this guy, he doesn't have a groove. He's so talented. 
he could be successful in any genre he picks. There's like, I don't know, 10 songs or whatever on, on the album, and he's, he's working in six or seven different genres. Who has that kind of talent? I, I was just stunned by it. It doesn't have to be your favorite style for you to be blown away by it. I've never seen the first album. I, I didn't know he had at that time a previous you know album, Cold Spring Harbor. But to have that many well-crafted songs in different genres, it was I've never seen anything, heard anything like it. We all know the end of this story, but as you tell it, your campaign ran into a bunch of setbacks. Uh, the record label didn't have any more promo copies. It was a stiff. There was nothing they could do. And even some early attempts of yours to get it on the radio didn't pan out. Uh, what inspired you to really keep at it until you got the results you wanted? As a 68-year-old guy now, looking back on it, it's, I'm not sure I'm proud of it, but my motivation <laughs> was, okay, but but it is what it is, right? And Billy asked me the same question when we met backstage two years ago, you know, before his concert, Madison Square Garden, he invited us, my wife and me out. Here's the my little tags from it. It was November 10th, 2018. Yeah, two tickets on the floor, section C. It seemed to go fast. It was like a 20-minute, just the three of us, and we were in a suite waiting because other people were coming and going. And then just the three of us, my wife, Billy, and, and I. What prompted him to meet with you in 2018? I had put the story on my website as my blog, one point I thought, you know, I should tell Billy about it. I mean, it's not like anybody's talking about my story because nobody goes there. The Google Analytics says nobody's been there. It's been sitting there without getting a, any response for two years. I think I just Googled who's his agent. And I got the name of a gal, I think in New York, Claire, got her email address and just sent it uh, to Billy care of her. And so then Billy um, emailed me uh, directly. And so there was a little bit of a back and forth, you know, by email. And one of his things, he said, I'd like to meet with you and learn more about what you were doing back then and stuff. I said, well, fine. Next time I'm out, I have projects in New York and I can come out. And he said, well, I'm playing Madison Square Garden like once a month. Why don't you just come out, be my guest, you know, bring your wife. Um, and let's just meet in my suite backstage and spend some time together. So I thought that was generous and nice and said, sure. He was very generous with his time. He was, he was very engaging and he's a, a wonderful person, really. Very warm, quiet, thoughtful person. We got up because crowds yelling out. <laughs> you can say they're going, Billy, Billy. And I'm thinking, holy <laughs> shit, holy shit. What am I doing? I can't be taking up his time like this. Um, he just said, I've got one last question for you. I, I think I've got this verbatim. Why did you do all the things you did for me all those years ago? Why? That was like a deer in the headlights. And I couldn't, I was just speechless. And he's looking at me and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is like a, a paralysis here. And I just sat, thought, Keith, just tell him the damn truth, even if he doesn't want to hear it. I don't, I don't have a story for him. I said, Billy, it wasn't because I loved your music. It was because I loved your talent. Only God gives talent like that. And you got lots of it. They called you. And I know from someone who was in the room, it was your producer, Mike Stewart, who told me directly. I knew that they had fired you and Mike and told you it didn't work out. Everyone gave it a great try, but we will not be exercising our options for future albums. And then they said, it's time for you guys to go back to your day jobs. And when I heard that, I was enraged. Everything I did was a kid, a naive kid, raging against this machine that was not understanding talent. The music business was being corporatized at that point. Corporate consensus was driving artistic decisions instead of what was called golden guts. Producers and record execs who had gut instincts 
the 50s and 60s were full of the golden, the great golden guts of the music era. In the 70s, it changed to, quote, monetizing talent. It became a machine for making money. It was soulless. It was everywhere. It wasn't just Columbia Records by any means. It was pervasive. And I was working in the business and everybody knew it and talked about it. Things had changed uh, dramatically and not for the better. So I told Billy at the garden, it wasn't that I was in love with your music. It was I was in love with your, your talent. And when they called you in and told you, it's time to go back to your day jobs, I became enraged. And I thought, I will not let this happen. I'm only a kid in the sticks in Central California, but I'm going to, I have to do what I have to do about this. I was a shy kid, an introverted kid. I just snapped and became a, a different person. And that, it's, it's been probably the most, the single most important event for me personally in my life was just what I learned about myself when I stood for something. He had the right whatever, the right mix of innocence and talent, and it was just so fresh, and it was everything that music really was becoming the opposite of that. Billy had a very, I'll just say, he was temporarily incapacitated, looked like he'd taken a, a punch to the gut, kind of creased over, and we were both in tears when he stood back up. It was... Uh, I didn't want to create that kind of outcome from my meeting with this guy that I had been 40 years, 45 years earlier. You know, I changed my life for a couple months. It was just the recollection of that phrase, it's time to go back to your day job. Yeah, I think it was a very hurtful time incident for him. And um, clearly, in hindsight, I would never trade that experience and for such a short period of my life. A couple of months. It changed my life. As soon as he took off, I gave my notice. That's changing my life. It's like, I, I can't learn anymore. I'm done. I, I got what I, more than I could have ever imagined out of this experience. So I applied to university. I didn't really talk about the incident until uh, my wife, girlfriend at the time, she's German. We were living in Munich. And Billy Joel came to Munich, uh, late 70s, probably 79. So I told my wife, Hannah, about the incident, right? And I said, let's just go there. We didn't have the money to get go in the concert. But we stood outside after the concert. And I said, I just want to see if I can see him, like in his car or leaving or something. We didn't, but we're standing in the, in the, in the snow out in front of the concert place. And that's when I thought, I have to write down my story. It was so important to me. It stayed so vivid in my mind, all of it. So I started a notebook and kept track, you know, and so writing the art, the actual memoir, the time a skiff caught fire, was relatively easy. Kind of kept the log and, and when I could talk to people who were involved and get their recollections and piece kind of went together pretty easily. After you wrote uh, this piece for the first time in 1987, you spoke with Michael Stewart, who produced Piano Man and Street Life Serenade. Michael's an integral part of the Billy story, but there's not a lot of information out there about him. Uh, what did you learn about their time working together? Yeah, he, so he saw the articles, a person who subscribed to the magazine for, I wrote a monthly column for, for, for eight years. And one of the readers uh, came into my audio store and said, I sent your article to a good friend of mine, Mike Stewart, and he called me yesterday and said, everything in this is true. The mystery is solved. We were told when they said, you're not gone from the label after all, <laughs> we, we take back what's <laughs> firing you. You guys, all they told us was we heard that it came from a couple of guys working in a record store in Central California who did like a petition drive or something. And somehow they got it on some important radio station. And from there, because it was kind of a nationally known station, and that's how it took off. 
that's all we knew. We're talking, he said, you're writing a story and you just nailed it. I did not put in there that they were told it's time to go back to the day job. I knew it from Columbia Records at the time. But then Michael Stewart said it. He's a warm, wonderful sounding guy. He said the quote without any prompting from me. So I knew it's verbatim what they said. What he said was when they were told, you're still uh, among our stable of artists, they said that they don't want Mike Stewart to be Billy's producer, that Columbia had an in-house group of producers. And so they were going to produce him. And Billy agreed to that. And Mike seemed to be hurt by that, disappointed. I'm not sure he was hurt. What he said was that he was disappointed in that. He did hang around, he said, Columbia and do a few things for a few years, you know, little assignments, but producing Billy was not one of them. And this is after Street Life. Yeah. You know, you got to ask yourself, how many other talents are there like this in the world that they, you know, they didn't hit big by the record company's sell-by date. The record industry had a sell-by date, which for new artists at that time, early 70s, was typically three weeks. But if if the label really believed in, a, in, a, in an artist, then four weeks. If you're an established artist, before they give up on it, it'll be six or even seven weeks, right? But Billy was operating in a three to four week window and we were months we finally got it out there in on kino and the bill drake programmed network of 350 top 40 stations the biggest top 40 stations in america from coast to coast were all programmed at that time by bill drake if other artists didn't get somebody some champion and they didn't it didn't catch in the in those weeks that they had that was understood and verbalized and written down at the time and yeah even for you it was one record at the bottom of a four-foot stack uh you know what a series of very specific turns of events had to happen a lot of chance stuff happened the odds are i would have done what i did and the guy wouldn't have taken off it, it was luck on on my part if i hadn't done that petition drive i took my copy of piano man my promo copy this this one you know there's my little there it is demonstration not for sale <laughs> uh, thing on it this is the one you know any of those things hadn't happened i mean that was wasn't like i had some idea of what we were going to do with it the only way i knew to express my anger is a petition drive and i had a captive audience and so i went for it found it hard to take her She wouldn't listen to advice And though he never tried to make her Well, Keith, thanks so much for sitting down and sharing the story. On behalf of Billy Joel fans everywhere, we are very grateful for your... enthusiasm and determination and foresight to see the greatness in Billy. Had it not been for your efforts, I would wager to guess this podcast would not exist because his career may have gone down a very different trajectory. Let's look a little bit more closely at that Rolling Stone review. Yeah. So this one actually was March 14th, 1974, about five months after the album came out because Piano Man was released November 9th of 73. This review is by Jack Brichard. And he writes, Billy Joel's music has suffered in comparison to better established acts. His group, The Hassles, were a vanilla fudge slash rascal spinoff. His work with Attila was bettered by Lee Michaels. And his only semi-hit was a bit of pop schlock. Recent gigs at a piano bar on the seamy side of L.A. have given him a new perspective. And his piano man reflects a new seriousness and musical flexibility. Its production is reminiscent of Elton John's and his music has the show tune ambience of David Ackles. But his 10 new tunes also introduce a more mature, less frantic musician. Joel's best efforts 
speak to the point about people around him. His sense of detail fleshes out his B-movie characters. Somewhere along the line holds the album's most concise observations, waxing philosophical without wallowing in pretentious drivel. Captain Jack chronicles the stolidly suburban lifestyle of a decadent middle-class hipster from Hicksville, USA. Despite Joel's facility portraying others, he seems unable to come to terms with himself. The title tune tries to reflect the piano man through his patrons, but Joel fails to illuminate his own character. At other times, like in the ballad of Billy the Kid, the singer's bristling ego mocks his supposedly objective point of view. The production by Michael Stewart and the arrangements by Michael O'Marrington are full-bodied and thoughtful, employing fine studio help to show Joel's keyboard technique to best advantage. Stewart sometimes builds his walls of sound too quickly, making anticlimactic what might have been powerfully dramatic. But Billy Joel's enthusiasm and musical straightforwardness keep everything together and moving briskly along. As much as we're talking about this album being one that, you know, sort of set the course for the next couple of years, this review sort of sets the course for his relationship with the critics. You know, we see them already mentioning the, the show tunes, sort of Tim Pan Alley aspect of it. They don't like the fact that he doesn't seem to portray himself, which I think also goes, you know, harkens to a Tin Pan Alley sort of mindset. You know, these people weren't writing songs about themselves. They were writing pop hits, you know, comparisons to Elton John are there. The singer's bristling ego is there. So, you know, pieces are being put in place here. It talks about how Billy speaks through characters and doesn't really expose himself so much. And you'll find that throughout his career. Some of Billy's most beloved songs are are character driven and yeah. of yeah. observations he's made that he's setting the scene through somebody else's eyes. That is a bit more of a shortcoming on this album than it would be in later albums. Uh, the times when he's not singing about himself, which are often, that's the only thing I find disappointing in this album on a close listen, sitting down with the lyric sheet reveals some deficiencies here and there. Some of these songs I never realized were better in passing. Some of these songs are a little better close up. But, you know, even when I did deep dives in particular onto the lyrics of like Songs on the Bridge and River of Dreams in particular, you know, I pulled a lot out just in the wordsmithing. And, and that's not really here. In terms of just pure like formalist craft, the words he sings leave a lot to be desired. Even if these concepts are starting to get there, he's a little clunky with his, his syllables, you know, and, and his flow. Yeah, he's still developing that, certainly. I mentioned this on our album covers episode, and I thought about it to make sure it shook out, and I think it does. The album should have really been called Travel and Prayer, and it should not have had Piano Man nor Captain Jack on it. Because stylistically and lyrically, every other song on this album finds people wandering. Yeah, uh, Piano Man and Captain Jack are songs about people stuck in place, even though the character in Captain Jack, you know, wants to go to a special island. Yeah, he wants that because it's he's stuck. He's stuck where he is. You know, he can go to Greenwich Village, but right. he ends up back on Long Island every right. single time. The other songs also betray that that country feel. And as far as it being, you know, not autobiographical, you know, we know Piano Man uh, to to a great extent is. You get snippets of autobiography throughout the album. If you know where to look, if you know the lore, You're My Home was written for Elizabeth. Elizabeth is also referenced in Worst Comes to Worse. That was sort of about his own trek cross country. And she was in New Mexico that day. She was a woman in New Mexico, obviously. Yeah. For a second, it's not like he had a, a you know a piece of tail out there or something. You know, She was clearly... Yeah. On her and way she to was California the wa- as well. She was also the waitress practicing politics. Exactly. But I think the best way to look at this album is to see the travelers in it. He's searching for something. And that is probably the thread that ties into Billy personally. This is him searching for his voice in music. Why don't we dig in and go track by track through the album? Do, 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 do. <laughs> To me, feels like the intro to like a 70s game show. Oh my God, you just ruined it for me. I don't like you anymore, sir. I love Travel and Prayer so much. I, I don't even care that it's got that stupid mouth harp at the end. I will never, ever, 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 ever forget the first day I heard this because I knew Piano Man and I heard Piano Man a million times. Then I found out my cousin had, I think I've mentioned this before, then I found out my cousin had the album, went over his house. And we were having a sleepover and we we're going to listen to all the Billy Joel albums. He was going to walk me through it all. 
and he put on Piano Man, and I was like, the hell is this? Like, I didn't know from country music. I was like six years old living in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? So this was like just total yeah, Martian music to me. It was instantly a movie, and, and I remember just being like floored by it, fascinated. I, th I think with a few elements taken out that, that do make it like slightly hokey, other than that, it, it is a great A song, and it doesn't take much to get it, to get it there. I think to me, the lyrics take away from it. I think the lyrics are kind of half-baked. Musically, I really like it. I like the movement. I feel like it's a, an interesting choice for an album opener because this is one song that feels the least like Billy Joel to me. That's absolutely true. You know, I just choose to understand that this is the opening for the album that should have been. It doesn't fall as flat lyrically as it does for me as it does for you, I think. Although I did write down that this song has a similar lack of authenticity to Weekend Song um, in that sense that we know he's talking about something that he just doesn't really know about which you know in retrospect may not really be true um, I think it's just the country vibe that's giving it that that feel that we know now that this isn't Billy Joel the lyrics however I really don't have a problem with because it's in this country idiom now it was the first one I was sitting down and I realized very quickly that yes He's not, he's not getting that, that, that craft yet. That's definitely not there. But in terms of writing a sort of cowboy song, a folk song, it's there. I mean, that's what these songs sound like. And I think he does that to a T. And if this song seems strange, it's just because I don't know how to pray. That's a fantastic line. Yeah. Perhaps yeah. not the, uh, the most sonorously pleasing, but what a great sentiment. Now, that's certainly a standout line in this whole lyric. That's a little Billy poking through. And speaking of a little Billy poking through, his approach on this song matures and becomes the entertainer. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's a song with no chorus. It's a song that could have 20 more verses if you felt like it because there's no narrative arc to it. It's, you know, just each one's just kind of talking about the same, you know, circling the same idea in different ways. And it's built in the arrangement. More and more elements come in as the song goes on. And yeah. then it has some stops towards the end. Mm -hmm. And then obviously this coda goes on way longer, but, you know, the entertainer has a small coda on the end of it. So let's go to the big one here. The title track, Piano Man. This song is just a timeless recording. It almost just stands out on its own, meaning when you go back and listen to this album, to me, it doesn't sound as old as the other recordings sound. It, it may even be something the effect of the music video that came out in the 80s they did a music video for the song in 1985 so that almost made it a fresh thing again you know i'll still hear it somewhere today it holds its own you know amongst the later recordings it is a very odd song it doesn't fit the country or gospely vibe of many of the other songs here it's clearly got some sort of archetypal, old-timey feel, but you can't quite put your finger on what it is. Mm -hmm. So it's idiosyncratic in, in a way that I think we don't realize anymore because we've all heard it. Everyone's heard it 25 million times, whether you like Billy Joel or not. Nothing about it seems unusual. I think that the even-keeled rhythm section works especially well in this song. Keeps it from getting overly maudlin. Keeps it from being overdramatic or being melodramatic. It allows the song to be a series of vignettes and sort of nothing more, and that's okay. It sits in just the right spot that way. Now, have you ever heard the theory? <laughs> um, I saw this on the internet, so I'll I kind of walk it through as it as it develops. So somebody says, uh, Paul the real estate novelist who never had time for a wife, and Davy in the Navy, you know they're gay, right? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, know, you know they're a couple. What about the bartender that tells him, man, what are you doing here? So then somebody comes up with this theory that it's a gay bar. <laughs> And Billy doesn't realize it. It's all the patrons have a pool going to see how long it takes them to figure it out. I have seen that. Yeah. It's like, wait a second. <laughs> Tickles me every time I come across it. You hear a little grit on this one that you don't hear on other songs. And I think it's because it's it's a little more authentic. The way he painted it was very interesting. Uh, you know, it's also worth noting, too, that this is the very first instance of a radio edit. Ooh, good point. Dory often went that that's what inspired the entertainer. If you want to have a hit, you got to make it fit. But... They yeah. definitely didn't cut Piano Man down to 305. The form on this is really wonky. Yeah. Like, if you're playing it, you better be careful, because you'll, you'll, your mind will skip to a different part. Like, the verses are all different different lengths. 
Sometimes he does an interlude, sometimes he doesn't. It's, it's not as straightforward as it immediately seems. That brings us to what's arguably his Levon Helms impression. This is Ain't No Crime. This is the precursor to the Weekend song. Those two are conceptual cousins as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Yep. This is one that disappointed me a little on a close listen. I always kind of liked the song, but it was a good one to like bop around to and you know not pay too much attention to. You sit down with the lyrics. It's slightly disappointing. Uh, you realize there's no third verse that provides a through line or a conclusion to some sort of story here. You get the impression that this guy wakes up, he's in trouble because he's late, he was out drinking the night before. You know, my impression is he's sitting with his buddy at the bar, sort of retelling all this, mm -hmm. you know, and now he's talking about, you know, now you tell me that you need somebody, you may love him forever and that whole thing. You know, he's a wanderer in the sense of, it sounds like he's about to begin his journey. And if that's a stretch, you know, that's only because this song doesn't resolve. We don't get anywhere else with it. All we have is this guy, it seems to me that his wife was yelling at him one morning because he overslept after going out drinking. So like, I think the next, that, that very same night, he goes out drinking again. He's talking to his buddy. His buddy is reciting everything back to him. Like, do you hear yourself? It's fine, but you hear yourself, right? You know, it ain't no crime, yeah. do what you gotta do. But you know, we don't know what he does. We don't know if he leaves, you know, if he leaves his woman and goes to traveling or if he just goes home and resigns to doing the same thing over again. You know, and then you just get that and just as surely as the wind keeps blowing, which is like sort of nonsense. So it sounds like that's a little later on the night. They just keep on drinking, you know. Yeah, they're getting a little looser. They just keep having a couple cocktails, throwing back some beers, and they never really get to the point because they, they're just getting more inebriated as the night goes on. You know what this song needed? And it needs this because I note later, the first time it happens, we need a good Billy B section. We need that turn and tone and everything else where we get some internal something from the subject of the song that explains why he can't commit or why he can't stay tied down or whatever. You know, that's what we're kind of missing. That would have delivered so much more. Track four on side one, which is You're My Home. With all the songs that made songs in the attic, those are the songs that are so well ingrained into me and the performances that are as well. So I don't go back to the studio version of this as often. So I really tried to listen close here and it certainly has a different tone with this band. This is one where having a country band really, really felt good. This harkens me almost to, which I think this came out first, feel like a little bit of uh, blood on the tracks, a little bit of tangled up in blue in this sort of wandering here. The two big things about the Piano Man band and production are really on display here. One, you really hear how much Ron Tut floated uh, the groove more than uh, Lib was you know, sharper on it. You also hear how they, they pulled elements in and out to get the dynamic effect, especially on the instrumental part. And I also love in the intro of both versions, how well the acoustic guitars and the piano complement each other, really create a nice full textured sound um, while playing different things. The other thing I like about this version, uh, maybe a little more than Songs in the Attic, is it doesn't have those stops in the last verse. That sort of obscures that somewhat weird line that can bog this song down about uh, being a pleasure dome. <laughs> yeah. Which, which sounds awful naughty, but it's actually pretty nerdy. That's from a poem. Is that right? Kubla Khan by uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And I knew it was a poem. I don't have this all off the top of my head. This is mentioned also in Citizen Kane. The opening lines... Uh it's called a Kublai Khan or a vision and a dream, a fragment. It starts off in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where off the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. Mr. Coleridge here had a very vivid dream and being the poet that he is, he, you know, he recorded as much as he could. So it doesn't really quite go anywhere. It's just uh, this fragment, this, this sort of uh, snapshot. Which, you know, it, it really, uh, you know, it sort of fits the album, <laughs> you know, or at least yeah. Ain't No Crime and uh, You're My Home. It's just these fragments of time, you know, you don't get the through narrative. You just get these moments of repose. It makes a little more sense in context with the poem. But if like simply sticking that phrase into the lyric, it basically like, what kind of weird 70s disco thing is that? And I always laugh too. Uh, my wife and I always laugh at the uh, how he never quite finishes the line home. You're my hoe. <laughs> and it just trails off every time. You're my hoe. He was ahead of his time. You're my castle, you're my cabin, and my instant pleasure dome. I need you in my house, because you're my hoe. 
So after that, we close out side one with Billy the Kid. Now, this is a, the second bona fide classic on the album. Yes. What I like about this version is you really hear the Aaron Copeland influence with the uh, with the orchestration. It's something that couldn't translate that well live, and so that's certainly a nice studio element. Nice to hear with headphones. It's a little slower than Billy typically would play it live, so it has a different pulse to it. Definitely miss Lib kicking into the second verse. You know, if I miss him anywhere on this song, it's just that, 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 you know, Hammer of Thor coming down right there. Oh, yeah. This is a great example of adding more uh, versus using dynamics in the production. The way the timpanis really mesh with everything else, they're almost imperceptible, but they're yeah. definitely there. I- honestly, it was probably years before I even noticed it was there. I really only noticed it this time because I made such a point of listening for the orchestration. As much as I want to see Fly on the Wall of, like, Billy and the band, like, cutting and recording, I would love to see, like, the orchestra they had overdubbing this now we open the second side with worst comes to worst i always love this one this is a fun side and it's the the feel and the groove of it to me has a is very early 70s i don't know quite how to pinpoint it just that groove it's fun it's a fun tune yeah you know it mixes the country elements we hear with a little bit more urban funk you know that that wah things like that or you know a little more gritty than you than you realize at first so now we get the first real billy B section. I don't think there was a great any really great ones on uh, Cold Spring Harbor, unless I'm forgetting. Nothing's jumping out to me. No, I would peg this one as the first one, and that's that great um, lightning and thunder flashed across the roads we drove upon. Oh, but it's clear skies we're under when we are together. When I sing my song, what really works about that is he's so lackadaisical during those first two verses. The tonal shift batches the lightning and thunder. You know, it's like he goes through that rough patch and he comes back out again. But when we are together, you know, when I sing my song, this concludes, you know, funny and easy. If it ain't free, too many people got a hold on me. You'd think he'd be bitching about it, but he's not. He's just kind of come to terms with it, having gone through that rough patch, which is an interesting precursor to his entire career. <laughs> yeah, so many people have in their hands in, in his career. It's funny, you know, they basically like they can they can take everything but that. And then, you know, the line... um, that uh, that I always grabbed me too. The uh, I do my writing on my road guitar and make a living in a piano bar. Interesting how he alludes to that. He mentions essentially the piano man thing. And funny that he mentions guitar and piano in the same breath. You know, I had heard him talk about that back in the day. You know, he didn't have suites with pianos in them. Yeah. So <laughs> he would carry a guitar with him just to write. And so we're continuing on to side two here. Second song. Track seven, uh, Stop in Nevada. He always found it hard to take her. She wouldn't listen to advice. And though he never tried to make her, she often thought it would be nice. Love this song. Yeah, this is one I always loved too. And then I started to worry that maybe it suffered from a guy writing from a woman's point of view, which this intimately can sometimes not work. And us fellow fellas may not realize it, <laughs> but a woman might. Yeah. So I asked my woman and Alexa says, no, it's fine. So I was like, okay, good. I can go back to, to enjoying this one. Because, <laughs> you know, it's that though he never tried to make her, she often thought it would be nice. I'm like, ooh, that's dicey. Like that's... Yeah. It sounds like you're trying to force her, you know what I mean? Like, eh, you sure about that, pal? You better <laughs> right, pick yeah. that up, but you better pick that up firsthand from somebody if you're going to say that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Maybe the second most cinematic song on the album behind Billy the Kid. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's Elizabeth, right? I mean, it's never mentioned, but... It's like almost like her leaving John Small and her and Billy going to California. And I think that's, that's maybe perhaps because I am so insightful and perceptive. That's also, you know, what I picked up on that. Like, he's really kind of, he, he may be stepping in something he may not should be stepping in at this point. You know, like, dude, are you really going to, like, tell this story that you are involved in from right. that perspective and leave but out he, your involvement in this whole thing? Like, like ah, I mean, this line, gutsy. Yeah, and though she finds it hard to leave him, she knows it would be worse to stay. He <laughs> wouldn't understand the reasons that make a woman run away. Oh, pal. <laughs> 
how did John talk to you after this? <laughs> There's a good chance that he's taking the germ of, of truth and, and spinning plenty more around it. But Interesting how this is one song where he just goes right into verse one, right at the mm-hmm. top of the tune. And I, I, I dig that. Yeah, this you know the song really calls for it. Definitely a country song. I was so fortunate to see this song live in 2017. It was December of 2017, and most of the crowd was just either fairly quiet A lot of people probably got up to get a beer. I was enthralled. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm about to hear this song and I will probably never hear it live again. And it was a treat. He played it a handful of dates in December of that year. You know, what makes this one work is that, you know, there's a a bit of a story in it. There's a narrative arc, you know, even even though it kind of dwells on the same thing, it just it explains three ways and, and ends with her leaving, you know, and it's okay that we don't know what happens next, but we have a really full picture of why. And, and there's a bit of conflict, although she finds it hard to leave him, like you see, you know, she knows it would be worse to stay. There's the moment of like, you know, is, is this going to happen or not? And it does. That third verse, though, that's where we, we almost could have used another B section. And this is where we see the limitation of that smooth West Coast production, because you want to hear a dramatic drop off. You want to hear it sort of come to a stop and then really come roaring back to, to give it a little, to give it a little something different after, you know, it's the third verse now, you know, what's, what's it, use it twice and lose it is usually the, uh, the rule. Right. That's why the bridge comes after the second chorus. Cause you've heard everything twice already. Maybe, maybe the lyrics don't support it. Maybe it works to, to groove through it there because it's, it doesn't have the heft to support a full stop, but that last chorus should have been, uh, should have kicked in a little harder than everything else, especially with the money in her pocket. She's a rocket on the 4th of July. Yeah, so it's a song like this, though, that makes me think sometimes that this feels more rushed than a lot of Street Life Serenade. When you hear how the band just grooves along to these songs, it makes me think that they didn't have a lot of time with them. Now we're going into song eight, which is the third song on side two, the other ballad, If I Only Had the Words to Tell You. And this one, I think, is the weakest link on the album. Yeah. Easily his most inauthentic, easily the one that makes me think that he was writing this one for someone else to sing. See, that's interesting. I always felt the opposite. To me, I felt it was personal. Really? Yeah. In what sense? It just, to me, struck me as a vulnerable song of him just struggling to express himself to somebody he loves. I don't know. It just always, to me, struck me as something pretty authentic. That's kind of funny how we were pretty far off there on this one. Some of the lyrics don't quite hold up, but, you know, that's kind of the theme of the song is, you know, not finding the words. I mean, I'm going to stand by my statement. I I, I think they're, I think the, the lyrics are kind of banal here. I think they don't, you know, yeah. he really just says the same thing five times in five different ways and, and, and doesn't really hit anything that interesting. But the radio yeah. repeats them every day makes me wonder if this is actually a subversive song in the sense that uh, he's struggling to write something that you're not, that you know what I mean? Like it, it's got to do <laughs> yeah. more with songwriting than, than romantic love. I will say this, whether you like it or not, I'm surprised that this didn't go on that She's Got Away Love Songs compilation, but they put on like And So It Goes and State of Grace. Traveling Prayer's even on it. Yeah, that is a weird, a weird setup there. <laughs> Bonus track, Nobody Knows But Me. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Elvis President Boulevard. <laughs> yeah, you picked a real bad time. <laughs> Is this possibly the first overt Beatles-inspired moment in a Billy Joel song? Which part is that? Ah, uh, the bridges at 139-235. To me, they scream Beatles. I can see that. It's got that little, like, McCartney. And then, and then here, especially. Yeah, that's more lennon yeah. But it's just real short. It goes by quick. You know, there's so many instances down the road where you hear Beatles on Billy's songs. This is the first time I really noticed it. You know who I thought of that I could see singing this? Helen Reddy. For as much as we maligned her for that bizarre entertainer, like that kind of showy kind of voice. Either her or Ethel Merman, take your pick. Or Barry Manilow. Uh, He's kind of campy. <laughs> Very campy. I never thought his voice was, was rich enough, though, that for what I want to hear out of this, you know. Well, I found that most 70s covers of Billy songs were like that, though. That brings us to another highlight on this album uh, is Somewhere Along the Line. Gotten some renewed interest, I think, with Great American Music Hall. This is the classic 
of the early years that unfortunately Billy just started packing in that classics and hits from the mid 70s on that those early years songs just found their way out of the set list and this is one of those great songs that unfortunately did because uh i think this is a fantastic one you know musically it's great it's got some great hooks in it got some great stings when those backing vocals come in okay so i'm gonna work backwards from like the great fusion of the lyrics and the music here is how like you know there's <laughs> a couple times he like he starts the verse so confidently and then he like sort of fades away and then comes back in when he comes to the realization about somewhere along the line he just resigns himself to his fate but there's that moment when the lyrics betray that hesitation or fear or vulnerability the music followed and then comes crashing back in i love the fact that it's he's he's being all fancy schmancy in the beginning talking about being in paris and then he references virginia like how like kind of mundane can you get and it's a cigarette and it's like burning them and it's eating up inside them that's a nice funny way to like contrast the two places one line that i i always liked was right near the end yes the young man is the king of every kingdom that he sees but there's an old and feeble man not far behind he's always looking over his shoulder you know waiting for the other shoe to drop so to yeah speak. yeah the inevitability of it too when somebody asked me i want to hear like a an old like a classic old billy joel song this is that a song that didn't transcend the years and go on to become a classic in the canon of Billy. In that early years of Billy, this is one of those songs. This is really that second tier that just didn't, almost made it and just didn't. That brings us to the last song. This one that ironically, I don't think should have been on this album, but was the catalyst for getting made in the first place, which is Captain Jack. Now, just to clarify, at the time, this was not only a hit on WMMR and, uh, you know, where I live, this was the most requested song at the time, like transcended all others. Like that's how big it was. I imagine him dragging the Roy Rogers band, kicking and screaming to Long Island. And it's interesting that Reese Clark is playing drums on it. I really want to know how that came to be. If it was because uh, Reese was on Sigma Sound. That's what I suspect. The Billy live bands, their version of it was so great. And Reese has such a great feel on Captain Jack. Just really hits that sweet spot with it. I'm curious if, kind of like with River of Dreams, how they did Shades of Grey with Zach Alford. But then they're like, nah, we got to use the Liberty take. There was something that, you know, as great as Ronnie Tut is, it was missing a little something that Reese brought to the table on it. This one needed East Coast grit because it's got, you know, he's clearly name checks Greenwich Village here. It's it's such a New York song. You just you just couldn't have the, the, the West Coast country feel to it. That's what's so interesting about this song. This actually brought me a little bit of solace a few years ago when I when I came to understand, you know, the term bridge and tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, that all has to do with New York. That's, you know, the bridge and tunnel crowd where the other boroughs and, and Long Island taking the bridge and taking the tunnel to go to Manhattan, yeah. to go to the real place. So this is like the ultimate bridge and tunnel song, you know? And, and when, I, right. when I understood that that was a thing, I was like, I, I think I see where I fit in now. Like I bridge and tunnel down to Center City or wherever I'm going, but you know, like I'm, right. I'm a little off the path here. That's a part of what makes this song so fascinating is that this isn't like some romantic junkie uh, in New York or, you know, in L.A. You know, this isn't uh, William Burroughs, uh, you know, shooting, shooting his friend in the face, trying to do the William Tell thing and then hightailing it down to Mexico, man. This is just a schlub from Long Island. And the best he can do, you stand on the corner in your new English clothes, right? If the kid was the real deal, you wouldn't have mentioned it. It would have been understood that he's dressed all mod. It's the fact yeah. that like he clearly like dresses up and goes to the city to do. It's like he's looking for that excitement, but it's out of his reach. Yeah, he's out of his element. Just like getting higher, chasing the dragon or whatever, you know, like you get a little piece of it, but you're not really there. You have to leave. You have to, you know, you you come back out of it. And that's what he's searching yeah. for, you know, even more right. than, than heroin, you know. I put this as uh, oddly as a precursor to Goodnight Saigon in the sense that it's his first really journalistic foray clearly this is not based on himself but it's, it's kind of close to home just like you know people billy knew went to vietnam but he didn't clearly billy knew people on long island that were you know addicts and whatnot and i think the fact that the song became so popular virally or whatever passed for viral at the time spoke to the fact that he hit the nail on the head that's an interesting feat that billy doesn't get a lot of credit for and on an album that is mostly void of that exactly and this was clearly being played live before the album was even recorded. It stands to reason that some of those Piano Man songs were written after Captain Jack. 
So that's very interesting that, like, he came upon something in Captain Jack that was the outlier of the album that was but really special and and something we would later see him build on because, to me, this type of storytelling is a big strength. And speaking of the storytelling, I thought I was going to complain about this one not going anywhere uh, in the same way I did Ain't No Crime. But, first of all, it's not supposed to go anywhere because his kid ain't going anywhere. But you get two verses where he's copping. And I think what happens is he's not really hooked at the beginning of the song. He's just, he's always looking for something new. He's tired of living in his one horse town. So he goes to the village in his tie. So he dresses up in his best tie dye jeans. He stares at the junkies and the the closet queens. You know, you're understanding that he's going somewhere he's not used to. So, you know, then he's bored. His sister's going out. He can't go anywhere. You know, phone's going to ring soon. But, you know, obviously he's waiting for a guy to come through. So he goes out again. Now he's wearing his new English clothes, you know, and he's not as fascinated by it. You know, it's just he's just still out of place. But then you get in the last two verses, you just yeah. get excuses. You just get excuses for him to do it. He's given up by now. First time he yep. kind of has like a good reason. His dad's dead. And right. the second one, he's just bored. And that's that's the spiral that he goes down. He used to go out and at least try to do things. Now he found right. something. Now he just takes any excuse to do that instead. Searching for the excitement as the escapism early on, but then that excitement wears off and he like starts to, you know, fall apart. It's almost completely non-judgmental, even even as derisive as, as a line here or there is, you know, it really speaks to what, how the guy feels about himself, not how the singers thinks about him. We were like, uh, ain't no crime was very much the guy like being didactic towards his friend. This is also, too, one of Billy's longest songs. Yeah, Lex Saigon, that's true. 715, it's up there with scenes. The one thing I do very, very much like about it is how everything fades but the organ at the end. I love that. That was a great touch. It really was, and it really gives that feel of like being on the island. You know what I mean? Like, like that you've left, you've left everything behind, and you're you're on, you know, you're you're high as balls. <laughs> yeah, and that's all that's left. Exactly, and that's how the album ends, no less. Great guitar work on this too. It's funny because you know we had mentioned that Reese is the only member of the band that plays on the album at all, and it's just this song. But the guitar players did capture a bit of the spirit that Al Hertzberg and the, and them, you know, they had playing it live because it. It definitely, that, that guitar part has a nice edge, just enough on this song. Yeah, yeah, it's got more bite than other songs on there. And then obviously songs in the attic, David and Russell turned it up in like four more notches. And that's where we leave things. Yeah. Ooh, this is a fun one. I feel like uh, I feel like we've gotten more in depth with a few of the other albums, but this, was, this felt like a satisfying journey. As much as I'm excited diving into the albums that I listen to so much, like the Nylon Curtains, Innocent Man's, Glass Houses in the World, all those. It's really fascinating to dive deep into uh, the Piano Man's of the World, where I, you know, I'm familiar with the album, but I haven't listened this closely like I have with other albums of his. Uncovering a lot about the production, the performances, and the lyrics, and just trying to piece together, you know, how it coincides with where Billy was in life and career at the time. So once again, we give it to you now. Where does Piano Man sit in your album ranking? What songs do you love the most off this? What songs do you think fell short? Uh, who was around that picked up this album when it came out, or at least pre-Stranger or, or pre-Turnstiles? Was this your introduction? Are you from Philadelphia? Do you remember Captain Jack being on the radio all the time? You know, as always, we want to know where your thoughts and perspective and taste sit. Is this album one of your favorites? Do you feel this one's as important as uh, as we do? You know, shoot us an email at your convenience. Glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. As always, we're all over the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm definitely curious as to all of your thoughts on the album as well. And if you did get on the Piano Man ride early, I'm curious if as his recording career unfolded in subsequent years and albums, did that color your thoughts on the album? Is it an album that you may have listened to a lot when it came out, but slowly got put on the back burner as, you know, The Stranger and 52nd Street and everything came after? I'm curious what your journey with this album was. So hit us up, let us know, and we'll see you all somewhere along the line. See you soon, everyone. Thanks.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.